How you doing everybody? I'm Miles McPherson, pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego. And I want to thank uh, Todd Wilson and the Exponential staff for uh, having these roundtables and these discussions are so important. And thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, I want to preface my comments by um, uh, stating the goal. Every, every conversation needs to have a context and clear definitions of what we're talking about. But I want to frame the context of not only my comments and discussion you're going to have after I speak, but all these discussions. And uh, biblically, the reason we're doing this is so we can um, engage in loving relationships. Uh, the number one commandment Jesus said is to love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And at the end of the day, all of this is to get us to love one another. I know there's a lot of political language that's going, that goes behind racial divisions and what we're trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, in the kingdom of God, if we would love each other, all this is solved. And so we are learning uh, what are the blind spots uh, that are preventing us from doing that? What are the, the social narratives that we believe, the stories that have shaped how we see the world and, and how we view others? All we're doing is trying to figure out how to get past all that and how to acknowledge those things and love one another. So my, my topic is the same thing. I'm trying to um, give you tools and encourage you uh, to fulfill the greatest commandment, the second commandment. Uh, better and what I'm going to say is going to come out of my book, the third option, which I'm going to read to you here in a minute because there's something here that's very relevant to what we're talking about. But I want to start by telling a story. Um, uh, how many of you sitting around your table? If you look around the room to all the people who respond, how many of you are right-handed? Just lift up your hand and just lift up your hand real quick. So if you look around the room, my guess is that 80, 90 percent of the people in the room have your hand up because most people are right-handed and I want to tell you keep your hands up just for a second I want to tell you that the world was made by right-handed people for the most part and but on behalf of right-handed people to make life easier for right-handed people than left-handed people now I'm left-handed how many people left-handed all right we are uh, we are our own group and uh, we're at disadvantage now let me explain this to you uh, when you were in school, your desk was on the right-hand elbow. And if you're right-handed, you probably didn't even realize that that was the case um, because as left-handers, we didn't have that. But when you were in school, your arm was on the right-handed, uh, the desk was on your right elbow. So you could put your elbow on the desk and write without having to even look at your paper because you, you had your hand braced on the desk. As left-handers, we're out here in space trying to draw our name, getting ink on our fingers, um, on our fingers from going across the paper. And you can actually brace your arm, write your name, do your test, and talk to the girl next to you. We couldn't talk to the girl because we had our elbow out here in space. If you're right-handed, you can get any golf driver at every golf shop because they made them all for you. There may be the brand name or the one that you can get, that special one for me as a left-handed, but I might have to go to golf shop, golf shop, golf shop, or maybe order online and get it specially made and have to wait three weeks. If you're right-handed, you can go to any sporting goods store and get a catcher's mitt for a right-handed uh, person. And while you're at home playing catch with your daughter, your son, as a left-hander, I'm driving around town trying to find my mitt. Uh, because they don't make a whole lot of left-handed catcher's bits. If you're right-handed, we shake with your right hand. I got I to gotta accommodate because I'm left-handed. The world was made by right-handed people for right-handed people. Now, is it malicious? Not necessarily. But you, as a right-handed person, have the advantage where things that are right-handed are readily available to you, scissors and all kinds of things, they're readily available to you. When as a left-handed person, we have to make one, two, three, four extra steps. Now it's called right privilege. It doesn't mean that right-handed people hate left-handed people. And it doesn't even mean that you as a right-handed person are even aware. You may just now become aware of the advantage you had of being right-handed. But your ignorance to your advantage doesn't remove the disadvantage of the left-handed person. When the left-handed person is telling you they're driving around trying to find a catcher's mitt, you might be thinking, what took you so long? I got mine right away. And you think they're actually making it up because 
you have never had that disadvantage of having to go to three sporting goods stores. You never had that disadvantage of going to three golf shops. Everything was right there at your fingertips because it was made for right-handed people. Right privilege doesn't mean that you hate left-handed people. It doesn't mean that you are trying to hold the left-handed person down necessarily, but it does mean you have an advantage because culture accommodates your preference of being a right-handed person. Um, when we talk about privilege in society, privilege is really about the dominant culture accommodating itself over the minority culture. Context, racism is when you see the image of God in someone less than you. And all over the world, people do that for different reasons, whether in Africa it's tribal, it's black on black, it's tribal. In India, it's caste system. Here, it just happens to be color and sometimes socioeconomic. And, and then you have immigrants. There's a whole nother reason for seeing someone less than you. But it is, it is perpetrated by the dominant culture in whatever culture that is against the minority culture because the dominant culture is going to say we're going to do things that favor us. Um, not knowing that that exists doesn't remove the fact that it does. And when you live in it and walk in it every day, you don't even realize how systemic it is. Um, in my book, I talk about in-group, out-group. And in-group, out-group is where um, every single one of us identify with certain groups. Guys are a group, married men are a group, grandfathers are a group, etc. Whatever group you're in, that's your in-group. Whatever group you're not in, that's your out-group. I want to read something to you from this book that talks about the how we treat people in our in-group because this is an in-group. Your color is an in-group. Your predominant culture is an in-group. What it says, uh, this is called in-group bias. I am more comfortable with those who are like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those who are like me. I am more patient with those who are like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those who are like me. I express more grace when mistakes are made by those who are like me. It is easier to communicate with those who are like me. I assume I will get along easy with those who are like me. I am more willing to go out of my way to help those who are like me. And I possess more positive assumptions uh, about those who are like me. If I walk into a room and I see people who are part of my in-group, they're all pastors, they're all guys. Uh, as a football player, they're all football players. I naturally am, will gravitate and feel comfortable because I'm familiar. If I'm right-handed, if I'm right-handed, if I go in a room and see people who look like me, I'm gonna be more naturally inclined to have more positive assumptions about the people who are like me. This is what we do. So we, I want you to imagine the dominant culture that has the right-handed culture, the, the ethnic dominant ethnic culture has created a culture that favors them because that's who they are. And part of that is given in group bias to the people who are like you, whatever that is. If I, if I walk into a room, I'm going to give in group bias to my football players. It may not necessarily be malicious against baseball players or basketball players. But it is what it is, because if I give in-group bias to the people who are like me, whether it be um, my, my occupation, or my ethnicity, I automatically give out-group discrimination to the people who are not like me. The opposite is true. I am less comfortable with those who are not like me. I am less inclined to spend time socially with those who are not like me. I am less patient with those who are not like me. I don't give the benefit of the doubt to those who are not like me. I offer less grace when mistakes are made. It is more difficult to communicate with those who are not like me. I don't assume I will get along with those who are not like me. And I am less willing to go out of my way to help those who are not like me. And I possess fewer positive assumptions about those who are not like me. Privilege, another way of saying that is advantage. And when you are part of the dominant culture, and you are always around people who are like you, and you are always around people who you have positive assumptions about, more positive assumptions about, and they have more positive assumptions about you. There is a different experience than when you are part of the ethnic outgroup, and when you are part of, and when you are experiencing outgroup discrimination, when people are just a little more hesitant about you, they give you, they don't give you the benefit of the doubt because they're not like you. The beautiful thing is that we can create people from our out-group to be our in-group. 
by just finding something that's similar, which is another talk. I was talking to a, um, a president of a university, a president of a ministry, and I'll end with this, and he's white and he, he was having a conversation. We were talking about race and he was having a conversation. Tell me about a conversation he was having with someone on his board who's black. And the person on his board who was black was talking about this very thing in different terms, but being discriminated against. And the white executive said, well, if I went to this neighborhood, I would experience the same thing. So it's the same. And I said, well, the only difference is you have a choice. You have the advantage or the privilege of avoiding those neighborhoods. You have the privilege and advantage of avoiding being the other or the outgroup in a room. People of color do not have that choice. So whenever we walk in a room, we are always in the ethnic, not always, usually in the ethnic outgroup. It's probably true in the room. I don't know who's in that room where you're at now. But if you're part of the ethnic outgroup, and you, the people of the dominant culture are used to giving, uh, feeling more comfortable people like them, less comfortable people not like them. The experience for the left-handed people will be different than the right-handed people. So it, privilege is not that you have more money. It's not that you have things just given to you. It's just when everything's equal, the left-handed culture, the minority culture, is going to experience outgroup discrimination, and it's going, they're going to have a less favorable experience. And I'll end with this story. The president of the Toronto Raptors is a, is a, is a black man, Masai Ujiri. And after the Toronto Raptors beat the Golden State Warriors, this is the president of an NBA team. He's walking down to the floor to celebrate Toronto's first NBA championship and he is assaulted by a police officer and he has credential. This is a man who has gone to the highest level and yet uh, he was just treated like just, you know, just some black guy. And so when all things are equal, even though you may ascend to a very high level, if another guy from majority culture is at that level, there is a disadvantage to the person. The person who is of the ethnic outgroup is going to uh, often uh, experience outgroup discrimination or the disadvantage of being in the left-handed, a left-handed person in a right-handed culture. Hopefully this helps you. God bless you. Hey, Exponential, it's Peyton Jones here. I want to welcome you back to the Divided No More resource talks. Um, we have a resource kit, by the way, called Divided No More. And I wanna encourage you to pick that up if you haven't already, but this will be in there, but this is a bonus. And today I've got a really cool guest with me after we've watched Miles uh, sharing about what he was sharing about. I wanna introduce my guest, Santis Beatty. Welcome on. Hey, thanks Peyton, so good to be with you, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you. And because some of our audience, uh, maybe they're not familiar with you, tell us a little bit about who is Santis. Give us some of your backstory. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I've been in ministry for about 20-something years. Um, I started out ministry really in the university setting, so working on a college campus, doing diversity work and uh, higher education related to uh, racial reconciliation, justice, et cetera, and then felt called to ministry as a youth pastor in a predominantly black church, right? So I'm in this black church, I'm at this predominantly white school. So you could see how there might be some tensions. <laughs> it felt like one didn't want to deal with the other. And I uh, then felt called to a multi-ethnic church in um, a healthy multi-ethnic church in Grand Rapids, Michigan uh, called Kentwood Community Church, served there for a number of years and, um, and worked for our denomination after that for about six years. And now local church pastor uh, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, serving at a multi-ethnic church and uh, dealing with all the same things many of you are dealing with, right? COVID and uh, social and political unrest and uh, just trying to make sense of it all in a way that glorifies God and advances the kingdom. That's really good, man. Now, you and I have been uh, talking before this, and uh, we're going to get into the the heart of what Miles was talking about and get some of your thoughts and ideas. But you said something really profound to me that I just want to point out here. It's just kind of, it's, it's a little off topic, but it's real and it's real life. And it really hit me hard. You mentioned those jars on the piano behind you. Can you explain those a little bit? 
Yeah, those jars my wife um, put in our uh, this office area, and each jar has a certain number of pebbles or marbles in it. And every day a marble is removed from each jar to symbolize how much time we have left with our children before they graduate high school. And so one of those jars is a little less than half <laughs> full. And the others, of course, uh, are at their particular place. One of them is, it feels like it's almost still full. <laughs> so that symbolizes how, you know, for one, we don't have a whole lot of time left. And for the others, there's a lot of time. And so regardless of how many marbles are in there, we need to make the most of the time we do have, right? That's a two-edged sword. One's like, oh, we got a long way to go. And then the other one's like, oh, we don't have a long way to go. <laughs> That's bad on both ends, isn't it? It's tough. It's tough. A little, little overwhelming. But hey, Santis, I want to thank you for you know sharing your life and experiences with us today. Because I know when we talk about these uh, subjects, it's not a subject. It's not a topic. Like this is this is a life of experiences. This is this is everything. Like it's it's not just in a box, right? Maybe maybe people that have come from a privileged culture, that is, you know, it could be a topic. You know, that's part of privilege, right? It can just be a subject that we pull out and we talk about, but it's actually, you know, as Miles unpacked and and also as we've explored during the Divided No More Resource Kit, it's so much more to people of color. And I want to thank you for coming on here and unpacking a little more of the gospel with us today. So the first question I have today is how has ethnicity operated to define or shape your life or circle? Because we talk in exponential about, you know, who's in your circle or broadening your circle. And you've already kind of uh, hinted at that with some of your background, but how has ethnicity operated to define or shape your life or circle? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good question. It's a tough question, right? Because the question becomes, as you answer the question, where do you begin, right? <laughs> like, do I begin like in my childhood and how it's impacted my life? Do I begin in high school? Do I do I start talking about it as it relates to whenever I became more conscious of like what race and ethnicity really is and and how it functions in a racialized society? Or do I talk about it more recently, right? Where, you know, I'm operating in ministry as a pastor and as a leader and trying to help navigate all of that. I, I guess there's one way I would combine it. I, I think the, the truth for me is that uh, our racialized society has, has really defined a lot of relationships. It hasn't, it hasn't defined me, <laughs> but unfortunately it has defined a lot of relationships. And uh, those relationships are individual, personal relationships, and they have been more institutional relationships and communal relationships. Um, and the question that, that I always ask is, you know, looking at that, you know, how do we talk about it, right? Like, how do we engage it when we know that it's, it's real, it's around us? And then I think the other piece is, you know, as, I, as I've walked through this, we don't always use the same terms and terminology when we're talking about these kinds of things. And so some of the difficulty has been, um, we don't have common language. And, and that's what I appreciate about this series, right? Is, is it helps create some common language so that uh, if, if we're talking about something, we have an idea that we might be talking about the same thing if we can frame it in a context of a conversation. But unfortunately, the truth is a lot of, uh, organizations, a lot of churches, a lot of schools, you, you name whatever the system or the institution or the organization is, like there's a struggle in having this dialogue because there is no common language, right? Like, you know, I say race and you mean this, right? I say privilege and you think this, right? I say justice and you go there, right? And And we may not be talking about the same thing. And so I think part of What's been helpful for me as I think about defining uh, how this has defined parts of my life is is being more proactive and redefining it. Right. And so that's what I've learned in, in you know, I don't want to say older age, but I've crossed the 45 threshold. And so I'm on the latter end of this. Right. Instead of the front end is that like some things need to be redefined. Right. I'm not defined by it but I need to redefine it in the context of the gospel 
while at the same time understanding its cultural and its um, racial or uh, if its um, systemic implications in, around me, right? Like I can't like live on another planet and say, I'm not going to deal with it because I don't call it that, <laughs> right? Um, but I do need to say, okay, what does the gospel say about this? How, how, what, what, what does the kingdom communicate about these realities? Yeah. And how do I bring a kingdom uh, mindset and a kingdom posture into a world that desperately needs it? Um, mm. So I have to be willing to live in both worlds, communicating truth, but also understanding that maybe the, the world that I'm, I'm sharing this, this definition or how I'm redefining this, that it may take time for those two things to come into alignment or agreement or at least some level of understanding. Right. And so that's, yeah. that's part of the tension for me. And as I think about how I've, how I've wrestled with the definitions and how it's defined me or my culture. That's really helpful. And I, you know, I think that has been a goal of this series is really to listen to the, the definitions to obviously, you know, in our culture, um, people have run to their usual foxholes and, you know, kind of settled per, perhaps in many ways, the, the events of the past year has maybe embedded people even more deeply in their, their previously held positions because you hear all the rhetoric, the political rhetoric in a year like this year. And, and what's been helpful for the body of Christ is that um, it, it, it's, it's, it's an area where we come together going, Hey, um, we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we love one another and we need to be unified and we need to be together. And that was exponentials hope. And when, when the things that kind of, I would say that it, <laughs> it was almost like a blister that popped, you know, um, nothing new. It was just something that, you know, enough pressure, like a, like a pressure pot bowled over and erupted. And um, this has happened multiple times in America. Um, but this is our recent time. We look back at times in past history and think, oh, I would have been on the right side of things. Mm. But this is our time. Yeah. And, and I think for Exponential, um, I was really proud of the leadership in Exponential because they said, you know, this is going to cost it's going to cost us to, to have these conversations. There are going to be people that don't appreciate it. There are going to be people, Christians, that are going to be angry that we've even said, let's talk and let's listen um, and, and hear from, you know, particularly from people of color, um, you know, and, and maybe give voice to those with our platform. That, that don't have our platform to our audience. And yet what, what's always impressed me about Todd Wilson and the leadership at Exponential is they're like, look, multiplication is going to suffer if we don't come together and figure this out. And, and, and 100%, I mean, I would agree. I'm sure you would. But, um, but in this, there has been a journey from the very first episode we did to even now where um, if you had come on earlier, there was a lot more work to do. If people followed through this, they've heard a conversation. This is the second time we've encountered Miles um, on the chronology. I don't know how people are, are listening to this in the resource kit, but the reason all that preamble right there, uh, Santis, is I wanted to ask because we have defined 12 topics um, and that, that, that's why what you're saying resonates. But what would you say when you say there are terms that need to be defined? Um, I think it's really helpful at the back end of this series to ask you, um, what would be some terms or some things that you're like, look, this is a really helpful and there's no right or wrong answer on this where we're concerned. I would love to hear your perspective on what terms you feel are helpful definitions, terms with helpful definitions that we should all come together on and understand uh, kind of, you know, as one, what would be some helpful definitions that you mentioned? Yeah, I think they're, thank you. I, I think they're laced throughout the series, right? Like terms like white privilege or privilege, 
um, terms like unity, like what does that mean? Um, things like love, like what is that exactly, right? Like we talk about it like it's a picture on a wall, <laughs> but love is a verb, right, too, right? It's an action, uh, it's a commitment. Um, and I think there are also a lot of different things like race and racism, um, you know, justice, uh, systemic racism, like what is that? Um, culture, when we say culture, like what do we mean? Like all of these different things are terms that have been laced throughout the series that it's important to, and, and to remember, like, for example, um, you know, even as, as there are multiple people who talk about the same term, there might be different ways of approaching it, right? And so, for example, an African-American guy who talks about a topic may see it very differently than I do. And we're both African-American, <laughs> right? And because, you know, African-American men are not monolithic, neither are white men or white women or black women, right? And so, um, so finding ways to broaden our understanding and not lock into one, but to understand that there are different ways of seeing this. So, for example, in Nairobi, Kenya, our approach to multiplication may be very different than it is in Detroit, Michigan. It's not that one is wrong and the other is right, it's contextualized. And so let me understand what works in Nairobi. Let me understand what works in Detroit in the filtered through the lens of God's word, because there's some things that are gonna work in both places, right? But then there are other things that culturally uh, may need to be rethought, reimagined because of the context that we're in or the season that we're in, right? Like what's happening right now in the U.S. in the midst of a pandemic <laughs> would be very different than what was happening a year ago this time. Same country, same <laughs> people, just a different uh, experience, right? We see the world differently now because of the pandemic. And I think some of these uh, terms that we're talking about, we have to have the level of of research and uh, fortuitness to, to look at them through that same kind of lens. Some of them will stick and stay and some of them will evolve and they'll, un they'll evolve because of our context. Um, and, you know, we, we don't look at some things the same, like we'll never look at an election the same way. <laughs> right. After this election. That's true. Good, bad or indifferent. Whether yeah. you're on one side or the other side, blue or red, it doesn't matter. We will not look at an election the same. Because That's true. And so the same is true about these terms. We need to be able to see them, unpack yeah. them, but also contextualize them. Yeah, so appreciative of that because um, listening is the key. And you mentioned verb, you know, love being a verb mm -hmm. and listening is a loving thing. And I think that um, we do need to listen. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, man, you're a pastor in Detroit. I'm just thinking of tons of people I know um, that that are people in, you know, uh, you know, white white America. That if they went and lived in your neighborhood and went to church in, with the people at your church, you know, a year from now they'd come back and see everything completely through new eyes because of that contextualization. We had uh, Bob Roberts on one of our shows. We have a show called Frontlines with myself and Daniel Yang. And Bob Roberts Jr. Um, reaches out to Muslims a lot. And he made a statement where he said, I'm convinced the best movie on mission that's ever been made was Dances with Wolves. And of course, what, what's that movie about? It's about immersing yourself into another culture, which, of course, is where mission starts. So th this is the thing that, that to me... Um, you know, is, is so helpful is they're probably uh, many of our, our, our listeners, many of our audience are not ever going to go live in Detroit and go to your church, but having you on here is like a shortcut where I can hear, I can borrow your perspective. I can try to get inside and very lovingly try to understand from the experiences and where God's brought you and where he's taught you and, you know, the way that you've been shaped by all these things. Um, and so, you know, that that's huge, but that immersion is a big deal. And I, I wish we could do that. I wish we could just play musical chairs with America a little bit, get everybody to shift around. And, but you know, this is the best we can do at short notice. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, the, the tension though is like, I agree with, you know, Dancing with Wolves is a powerful movie. Um, I think the tension is 
you know, in that film is is around the area of like you you never can short shortcut relationships, right? And so like trying to help walk through this. Um, and and here's the other reality, like like, like I don't want to give the impression that like only white people need to do work, <laughs> right? About this, like people of all race races and ethnicity have to do work on this, right? I remember when I first started to become aware of my blackness, right? And I realized that I wasn't learning about my blackness in school, that I had to do it, do the work myself, right? That my parents had to teach me about it, that I had to spend time in other places learning about, you know, my, my culture and my ethnicity and my heritage and my, my people. Um, and, and that that takes work. And I think the other, the other reality is, that all of us need to do that kind of work, right? Is how do, how do we, how self-aware are we culturally, how self-aware are we uh, relationally, emotionally, and all of that impacts our ability to walk through these kinds of conversations. Um, I was dealing with something recently where um, there was a leader who uh, had been hurt and he had been hurt by other believers, other pastors, other leaders, who said they loved him, right? Who said they loved, um, who, who, that they loved the work he was doing and all that kind of stuff, but, but he had been hurt. And, and we're now doing some more things together, trying to figure out how to navigate that hurt and the hurt reemerges, right? And so how do, we, how do we emotionally help him deal with his pain, but also contextualize what's happening right now? And this was a white pastor, not a black pastor, right? And so, so how, do we, how do we help people walk through not just um, hearing about it from other people, but doing their own work, right? Like we talked about earlier, the whole idea of reading, like read is, reading is a really important part of it, but it's not the only thing, right? Relationships is a really important part of it, but it's not the only thing, right? Emerging, emerging yourself, uh, immersing yourself in a culture or context for a long period of time, or finding ways to do life with people uh, who are different than you, those are really important pieces of the puzzle, right? Like connecting yourself to the, the pain and the hurt of another community, learning about it, studying it, and then trying to figure out how to help reverse it. Like those are the kind of things that transform people. Like it's not, it's not just, although I appreciate like things like this, but these are just small steps to kind of point us in another direction. Like it takes, it takes a lot of time and work. And here's the, here's the unfortunate reality. We sometimes we don't want to do the work, <laughs> right? We want, the, we want the microwave multi church. We want the microwave of uh, diverse staff. Uh, we want the microwave diverse, you know, um, community. And it just doesn't work that way. Like it, it's, it's relationships, relationships, relationship It's kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And, um, yeah. And, and even, even Jesus, right, struggled dealing with relationships with people and, uh, and trying to teach and trying to, um, you know, give kingdom mentality to, to his disciples. And I think we will struggle with the same thing. That's really good. The hard work is those three R's, reading, relationship, and then I would call it relocation, but we'll say immersion, just in case people immersion into another, the three R's, right? The, the reading, writing, and arithmetic. But, you know, here's the thing, um, Santis, as we're talking about that, thanks for those very practical uh, steps. As we go back for a second, I don't know why I'm stuck on Dancers of the Wolves, but um, that really highlights the privilege, doesn't it? I mean, he realizes that these, these you know, the, the uh, indigenous people here, they are powerless, Right. Um, that is that is kind of what privilege is to a certain extent is there is an advantage. And we talked about the fact that um, this this idea of uh, Miles is talking about privilege. Um, let me ask you this very practically. What steps can we take um, to become more aware of privilege? Well, I think um, I think one step is to always remember everybody has power. Um, everybody has something to offer. Um, everybody has value. And when, when we're in a position where uh, a group of people are not seen that way um, or are not perceived to have those things, it is partially our responsibility 
to highlight or to point to those things um, and to be a vehicle that helps reveal what's already there, right? So in the whole idea with Dances with Wolves, the people, the indigenous people, the, the group that he was uh, connected to, they were very powerful. They, they had a lot to offer. They had a, a perspective of the world that was extremely important. The problem is other people didn't see the value of it, right? And I've said this before, like we violate what we don't value. And so when, when I don't value you, then I take, I take liberties, right? Or I ignore or I dismiss or, um, or I tell you that you need to do it my way, <laughs> right? And, um, and I think that's one of our tensions of, of privilege is, is stepping back sometimes and, and asking the question, um, do I see the assets? Do I see the value of this group of people? Do I see what God has placed in them? Do I see the image of God in them? And uh, I'll never forget, I was, I was preaching a message on this topic uh, at a church that I deeply love. And I was just, you know, going in on just the, the whole aspect of, you know, uh, doing life with people. And, you know, you can't have a multi-ethnic church until you first have a multi-ethnic life and da, 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 da. And uh, end of the message, people praising God and we're shaking hands as people are leaving. And this older uh, member says to me, uh, you, you had me, I was with you until you started talking about Muslims. And, um, and basically what I said is, is just to use for, uh, for our time, there've been different parts of our history in the evangelical church where we've reached out to different groups of people. And, uh, and we've seen transformation happens and happen in different parts of the world. And more recently, that, that group of people that we've turned towards has been people in the Muslim community. Like that is the next group that it feels like we must overcome our ability, uh, how we distance ourselves from them. And, um, and so she said, I was with you, black, white, I was with you, you know, and, but I wasn't with you when you said Muslim. And then she looked at me and she said, and that bothered me that I was not with you. And so the question becomes, who is that group for you, right? For some people is Muslim, for some people is the gay community, the LGBTQIA plus community. Like what, what's the group for you that is hard for you to love, that is hard for you to, uh, you don't have to agree with them, but it's hard for you to really listen to them and, and love them in a way that, that is kingdom, kingdom minded. And, and if there is that group, then how, how do I create opportunities to listen? Can I go? I'll never forget, I was teaching at a college and I told my students, we're gonna go to an organization, we're gonna go to an event organized uh, by the Daughters of the Confederacy. We're gonna go to an event organized by the Sons of the Confederacy. And what I want you to do when you get there is I don't want you to try to uh, say anything about what you believe. I, I want you to just listen. <laughs> and one of my students in the middle of it, she got up and she walked out. She was so angry. And I got up and I followed her out. And when I was out in the parking lot, she was like, why would you do this to us? Like, why well, I thought you, you know, I thought you were on our side and all this kind of stuff. And so I said, what, what's the problem? And, um, and she, she began to talk about how wrong the group in there was. And I said to her, I said, do you believe that they think they're wrong? <laughs> And she said, no. I said, well, they can explain why they believe what they believe. And I want you to learn to, what I want you to learn to do is understand that. You don't have to agree with that, but you need to understand that. And she went back in and she's been doing uh, <laughs> civil rights work ever since. But I, I think it, part of our challenge is we're not willing to be with people and listen to people uh, because we're so quick to try to tell them what they need to think and believe. And that causes us to have the in inability sometimes to reconcile, sometimes to partner. And, uh, and we have to be willing to do the work of being better listeners, active listeners. That's really good. Yeah. And I, I, I think that we've, we've often got, you know, this, this issue where, you know, within, within the church, there are certain ways in which the church is by nature conservative. There are also uh, places where the church by nature is radical. But when, when, the, when those of the kingdom attach themselves to earthly systems of government, 
they begin to look less and less like the kingdom. And so you might go uber radical and only be radical, or you might go uber conservative. Neither one looks like the kingdom. The yeah. kingdom has elements of both. And I think what, what makes it difficult is uh, conservatives by nature don't want to change. And what, what you're doing when you're going in there is you're, you know, when we're talking about issues of ethnicity and these things, we're actually challenging the system. And Christianity has a history of challenging the system, whether it be in the first century or even during the last century with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You, you, Christianity, the gospel is going to challenge the mm-hmm. system. And I think we forget that. Um, what are some, some helpful ways that besides listening what you just mentioned, what are some helpful ways that you think the church can challenge the system, the status quo, things that maybe are needing to change, but conservatives don't want to change. And, 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 and maybe the, the question on the other side is, what are some, some areas where radicals uh, maybe are going too far um, in, in thinking, oh, we're changing things, but maybe that's getting away from the gospel as well. What, what, I mean, both systems attach themselves to earthly, earthly powers in a way that's not helpful. What are some ways that the church can be a part of the proper kind of change in society? Well, I think anything that we cannot critique, um, we have made an idol. And so one question that I always ask someone is, are you able to critique it? Are you able to talk about the positives and the negatives? Are you able to talk about the good and the bad about it? And if you can only talk about the good, or if you're talking about something else that you don't agree with, and all you can talk about is the bad, then, then you've, you've walked into an echo chamber and you've made something else an idol. And so one thing is, is like, let's talk about, it. let's talk about what's good. Like one of the things I appreciate about the college setting is we would debate all the time, <laughs> right? Like you would have people who disagree with each other, professors who had different viewpoints. And sometimes it happens in seminaries, right? Where, you know, you have people who think about things differently and, and we can talk about it. And when at the end of the, the, the meeting, the, the workshop or whatever, we go home, we love Jesus, right? Like we don't think bad of each other, but like in the church, I mean, you start you start like a, a challenging how somebody thinks about something. It's almost like it's heresy, and you know yeah. you don't love Jesus anymore. So I think one of the things that we 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 can learn to do is to be more thick skinned, um, and to be willing to be challenged. Um, I, I remember whenever I um, you know was in college and I was taking an ethics class, and um, somebody who was a Jehovah's Witness was in my class. And somebody else who was Muslim, the Nation of Islam was in my class. And we began to talk about these whole concepts of how some of their, like the beginning of their faith works that's different than Christians. And, and it was a revelation to me that like the Nation of Islam with people out selling bean pies and that the final call and interacting with people at um, traffic lights, like there's a purpose for that, right? And it's not really to proselytize. It's not really to sell you on anything. Uh, the same is true with Jehovah's Witness who come to the door. It's not really to make you a Jehovah's Witness. The goal is to put new people to the faith in a space where their faith is going to be challenged, right? right. And where they have to learn to explain what they believe and why they believe it. And as I'm sitting there with this Jehovah's Witness and this guy who's in the nation of Islam, I'm asking myself the question, like, what's the thing for us as Christians that challenges us on what we believe, <laughs> right? What yeah. is, that thing? is it just going to church? Is it, is it being in Sunday school with people who already believe what we believe? Like, what's, like what do we right. do? And uh, the reality is that's what sometimes causes us to be so poor at discipling other people and evangelizing and being able to, you know, walk in a world of apologetics is we don't really always know what we believe and why we believe it. And so that's why we're so defensive when people challenge us, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because like we don't get challenged very often. And, um, and so, okay, the best thing that I can do is take the ball and, and run. <laughs> like if I'm in the park, like it's my ball, we're not playing no more. Or, you know, I can demonize you and say that you're a bad person, but I don't have any idea of how to communicate. So one of the powerful things about John 17, which was one of the 
passages that we use this past year at Exponential is in John 17, when Jesus talks about us becoming one, he communicates like through these two henna clauses that that is, that is one of our greatest apologetics, right? Is that, that, that we would become one. So why yeah. is that a great apologetic? Not just our unity, but it's the work that we have to do to become yeah. one. Like it's not just the Holy Spirit that does the work it's us <laughs> that has to do the work to become. Yep. one. And if we walk through that process of the Holy Spirit transforming us and reshaping us and, and challenging us, if we can do that to become one, we are well equipped to be able to face a world who is, who is asking those deeper questions and we become the embodiment of it as well. And so the problem sometimes is we're not used to being challenged. So I would say, yeah, allow ourselves to be in spaces where we can be challenged. That's a huge piece of it. And not yeah. to win the argument, but really the more important thing is to win the heart. <clears throat> so true, man. You know, every church I've ever planted has been based around discussion. Uh, there'll be preaching, there'll be worship, but like literally every church I planted sits in circles in small groups. We don't sit in rows and people are allowed to talk. And that does exactly what you talked about, which allows people to interact with ideas and the gospel and working these things out, non-believers sitting in their midst. Because I think the university that you and I went to has changed. I think now that 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 universities are losing the ability to discuss. We now have safe spaces. We have people blasting foghorns when they don't like ideas. The The flow of ideas is no longer welcome, right? People get quickly labeled or shouted down, or we hear we can't have this person come or that person come to the university. I, I believe that we're actually uh, producing a culture that can't communicate anymore. And that perhaps is where the church can be that light can be that that oasis in the middle of a desert a thought you know where the church can say hey we can interact here and we can we can handle that um you and i both know that's not reality right now we know that churches are not safe places even to do that but that's the hope the hope would be that the church would somehow be able to interact with ideas and learn to have discussions and maybe take back what i mean the universities um started with debate. I mean, in Britain, in divinity schools, gosh, man, Oxford, all that. If you want to be a theology uh, or a minister, they trained you in theology and logic, and you had to debate your way out of everything. That was your learning. And uh, that's how you got um, some of the, the the great minds of, you know, at least in the British preaching tradition, that's how you got some of those preachers that you know are known as logic on fire they they had to they had to they had to argue with their way out of a paper bag but i i wonder if that's something that the church can reclaim in these days yeah i think i think paul does a great job of teaching about it right when he goes to the church in in athens or he goes to athens and you know some some argue that he took the poets and the uh the writers of of that day and he unmasked um, them by using their own culture and their own poetry and their own music. Mm. And, and that goes back to our willingness. We got to understand people well enough. Like even in apologetics, like you can't really win an argument until you understand <laughs> the context of the other person's position. And, yeah. um, and I think true. The, the reality is sometimes we don't even know the position. And so we're just like throwing stuff at the wall and, um, you know, and, and it doesn't connect. And like when people see that, it's like, man, they're being lazy, mm. <laughs> right? Like they're not even doing the work of understanding uh, who they're who they're speaking with. And so I think that's and, and that goes to, I think, one of the questions you were asking, like I, I would encourage people to find out, like, what are some of the pressing issues in your community? You might already know what they are. Like maybe it's food deserts, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's literacy, you know, maybe it's racial uh, injustice, maybe it's uh, issues that, you know, uh, some of the tensions with police, uh, maybe it's, um, you, know, you know, other other issues related to immigration or what have you. And like find find ways to sit at the feet of the people who are leading in that movement. Right. Find ways to be mentored by them and to be coached by them. And I think it's very um, it's it's humbling to sit at other people's feet who know about something 
that you don't know about. Like, I remember when I was in youth ministry, like I would know all the latest songs and all the latest videos and TV shows. Like, I don't know all that stuff now. And so now like, I don't have time to do all that research. So I got to I got to go to people who do know. <laughs> right. And start asking them, OK, so what's up with this and who is that? And are they even good? You know, and so we have to be willing to do the work and not just distance ourselves from it and say, since I don't do it, it's not important. But learn, take the time to learn. And so one question that that I've asked myself all the time uh, recently is like, who's mentoring me? I'll never forget one of my mentors asked me a question one time. She said, because um, we were having this debate and it was the first time I'd have ever had a female mentor. She says, I want you to go back home or your office or wherever most of your books are because she knew I love to read. And she said, I want you to pull off the shelf all the books that are written by women or that are written by people of color uh, or people who are not black or white. <clears throat> she said, pull all the things off the shelf. And I was like, I got this, you know, I've been doing multi-ethnic stuff for a minute. You know, I'm good. You know, I go back, I start pulling books off my shelf and, you know, I realize, oh my gosh, she's right. Like most of the voices I listen to are men. And most of the, most of the book on my shelf at that time were mostly white men. Right. And, um, and so I'm like, my Goodness, like my perspective, and it's not that I don't like white men, right? <laughs> my brothers as well, but like I have been shaped how I see theology, how I see leadership has been shaped that way. And she said to me, I called her on the phone afterwards in tears, and I said, You're right. Like I did not realize how much I was shaped by a few voices. And it's mm -hmm. not that white men are monolithic or black men are monolithic uh, yeah. or black people are monolithic, but. Yeah. Like, what about Watchman Nee? Like, what about a Chinese theologian? Why, why am I not? Right. right. Like, and so those are the kind of things that like expanded my view and helped me to see the world differently. And, and so, and so now when I'm talking to someone, I'm, I'm almost having to like translate. Cause it's like, yeah, I hear you, <laughs> but I know people who don't think that way. <laughs> and this is why <laughs> I yep. hear you, but I know people who don't think that way. And this is why I hear myself, <laughs> but I know people who don't think that way. And this is why. And so um, good. that whole idea of walking in somebody else's moccasins is pretty, is a pretty important part of this work. Yeah, man, it's a great starting. It's definitely not the ending point, but it's a great starting point. And it's it's very humbling to have any kind of experience like what you just described on any level. But on this level, it, you know, I uh, appreciate you sharing that, man. So, hey, uh, Santis, I want to thank you for joining us today for this conversation. It's been an important conversation. It's been a great time uh, to come in to the conversation kind of particularly towards the not the end because it'll be ongoing but um we've got so much mileage we've got 12 of these definitions behind us already and i appreciate you kind of fleshing some of it out for us um Sentis, if they want to get in touch with you or follow you or hear more of your thoughts on this where can they get in touch with you yeah, well, they can go to our website, mosaicmidtown.org. Uh, uh, can email me at Santes, S-A-N-T-E-S dot Beatty, B-E-A-T-T-Y at mosaicmidtown.org. Um, feel free to reach me in either of those spaces. Well, thank you so much. And on behalf of Exponential, I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in today. I'm Peyton Jones, and I've been here with Santis Beatty. And this has been Divided No More. We want to thank you for your interest in it. Thank you for doing your part to see the church of God multiply. That is our mission at Exponential, and coming together is a part of that. We can't do this separate. Jesus' high priestly prayer was that we would do it together. Check out the resource kit. If you don't have it, you can head over to multiplication.org and check it out. It is the Divided No More resource kit. I believe we still have a Christmas sale going on for that. That means you can get it pretty dang cheap. I think it was 40 bucks last time I checked. You're looking at like a hundred videos, an ebook, um, like 30 author book reviews with the author this, themselves. So uh, definitely check it out. It's worth having. And this is just a tip of the iceberg of what's inside.